rubber chicken. Huh? Did he have a rubber chicken? Tell me about the rubber chicken because everybody has a rubber chicken story for me. He, he, well, of course, it was that shock value that Damien liked to do, and I don't know, he just did inappropriate things with rubber chicken. <laughs> Think, yeah, I don't understand. He would carry it around with him all the time. Like he had it hanging off his backpack or walking it like a dog. Oh, yeah, walking it like a dog and <laughs> have it hanging out of his pocket. Okay. Oh, my God, yeah. Freak people yeah. out with he it. He had like, oh yeah, he had his necklace one time. Um, what else did he do? Oh, I don't know. Had it hanging out of his backpack a couple of times. Yeah, so, yeah, his rubber chicken. I got it. He really just said that. <laughs> I admit to remembering it. <laughs> Steven said he has a good, when I talked to him again, he said he has a good rubber chicken story. Oh, I'm sure he probably does. Jesus yeah. Christ. Oh my God. But, you know, when Damien came home from the military and he stayed, I was surprised that he stayed and the reason why he did it was because of his staying for his brother and his dad. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I'm sure he probably wouldn't have gotten into the pickle that he got into or whatever is going on. I'm sure he probably wouldn't have gotten into any of that if he would have not stayed for his brother and his dad, you know? Did he want to go into, like, video production, I think is what I heard? I think, like, video production, he likes, like, sound, like, like, sound production, stuff yeah. like that. Like, like I know they tour. liked to make videos of themselves playing guitar and then just random artsy stuff, like, with dolls or, like, a oh Bible in the church parking lot at one point. Yeah, and I watched some of them, and I think... I remember doing that kind of stuff as a kid. Maybe it was different content for me, but I would do the same stuff, the same just little artsy oh, yeah. stuff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, they did all sorts of stuff like that. Um, Damien played guitar pretty well. Um, I was surprised that he didn't have like a band, but you know, he was so taboo that I don't think anybody really <laughs> thought to have Damien come play in their band. I don't see him as a guy who's going to show up at practice and want to do the gigs. He's more like alone. He would have been a leader. Yeah. He would have been like, come on guys, come on guys, come on guys. You know, Yeah. I, I do have to say that Damien was definitely more for women. He was a very sweet guy to ladies. From Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, The Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. Okay, let's get some things organized. First, I'm meeting with Crime Stoppers leadership on July 8th at 11 a.m. I'm bummed it's going to take us a while to sit down with them, but we'll take what we can get. In the meantime, here's what I know about Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. That's the name of the 501c3 organization associated with the tip line I reported on last week. The organization's employer identification number is 25 one one five three six one six eight. I've linked the IRS charitable organizations page you get if you search for Warren County Crime Stoppers Inc. on that website if you'd like to see what I'm describing to you. Like your social security number, an organization's EIN is what identifies it to the IRS. Warren County Crime Stoppers Inc., according to the IRS rundown, is a 501c3 organization, making it quote-unquote charitable. Charitable organizations are exempt from federal taxes, and people who donate to charitable organizations recognized by the IRS can deduct those contributions from their income taxes each year. 
Other tax-exempt organizations recognized by the IRS are generally religious, political, social welfare, civic, or labor-related organizations, and quote-unquote private foundations, which generally see a single source of funding and are involved in providing grants to individuals or other organizations in support of whatever those individuals or organizations do. Quote, Organizations organized and operated exclusively for religious, charitable, scientific testing, public safety, literary, educational, or other specified purposes, and that meet certain other requirements, end quote, can be considered charitable exempt organizations. Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. falls under that heading as a public safety related organization. Further requirement for exemptions like these are that none of the money these organizations bring in can enrich any shareholder or individual with interest in it. Meaning you can't donate $20 to Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. at a steer dump and have that turn up in the hands of a board member for anything other than its stated purpose, which is providing rewards to crime tipsters. 501c3 organizations are also limited in their ability to lobby for legislative outcomes or actions or to attempt to influence the political campaigns of a favored candidate. Because charitable organizations depend on contributions to raise funds to administer their programs, in the case of Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc., the goal is to, quote, help the police protect you and your property and, quote, help stop crime in our community by, quote, placing criminals where they belong, according to DA Green's website for Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. I'm looking forward to learning more about the history of Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. because it looks to me like it's not affiliated with Crime Stoppers USA or Crime Stoppers PA, which is not clearly stated on the website. Either way, according to the details about this organization on the IRS Charitable Organization Rundown, they filed a 990N or an annual electronic notice, sometimes called an e-postcard, which feels unnecessary and clinically friendly. They filed that in 2009, 2013, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019, and 2020. No 990s have been entered since 2020. But we can learn some things about the organization's timeline in those years. The 990s are essentially an annual update report for small charitable organizations who raise under $50,000 a year, where they just let the IRS know that, hey, still doing charity, this is who to contact if you have questions. In 2009, the principal officer was Jane Highhouse. In 2013, it was Pete Carnavali. And in every year that a 990 was filed by Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc., since 2015, the principal officer has been listed as Gary Barnes. I'm waiting to hear back from Gary about whether the organization has disconnected the number outright or has been paying bills on a non-working number, and I look forward to sitting down with them again on July 8th. I'll keep you posted going forward if I hear back on those questions before that time. So the second thing I want to talk about, and briefly at the top of this episode, is the James slash D.A. Hernan issue. And I've been dealing with James pretty much the whole way through the show, so I want to make it really clear I'm not hammering James as a suspect. I don't call him a suspect, though others have, and I've relayed that information to you when it's happened. I said at the end of the last episode that there was more to James's time on the run, and that's because the docket that follows his assault case is for the most burglaries, thefts from motor vehicles, and criminal mischiefs I think I've seen on one single docket. There were over 50 individual charges on that docket, and James told me straight up he was running around the woods gathering what he needed to flee the county and eventually the state. What the court summary tells me from that time is 
that he was breaking into cars and sheds from one end of the county to another from about October 26th of 2004 to around January 27th when he was served that bench warrant and jailed on a $50,000 bail. Bail can only be paid in cash, whereas bond, someone can put their house or other large asset up to cover what the judge wants to ensure you're not going to act up if he lets you wait out the court process at home instead of behind bars. Bail in the aggravated assault case from 2002 outside Freddy's, which set the whole thing off, was 10 grand. What James was doing to raise funds for his getaway, according to the affidavit of probable cause on that second docket, the one with all the burglaries, was breaking into those cars, stealing things like a small prize-winning scratch-off ticket, cup holder change, phones, drugs, other things he thought he might be able to sell. At one point, James stole two handguns from one of the places he hit in those months. That might be why the paper listed him as armed and dangerous. James never used those guns that I know of, and he also never told me whether he planned to use them or sell them, although if I had to guess, I bet he had plans to put at least one on the market. I haven't spoken with James since last spring, and I'm trying not to reach out to him now unless I need to clarify a specific issue because he's given me what I've asked for, and politely. But James, if you're listening, I do welcome you on this show, on tape, to discuss any of this further in your own words. Anytime. As far as Hernan goes, I know that I sound like a self-righteous hen clucking away in the last episode, and I'm far from perfect, but the biggest thing for me is character. I can't get a peek at your character if you won't talk to me. The fact that the son of the assistant DA was driving Damien around that night for me would be enough if I were in Rick Hernan's shoes to want to address that letter publicly. It was his assistant DA's son who drove Damien to Prospect Street that day, and according to Damien's brother, Stephen, this person was the one he understood to be driving Damien around. While Damien's brother, Stephen, says he didn't specifically see this person driving Damien around, it was understood that Damien was being driven around by this person to him at the time, and it later came out in different conversations that it was confirmed. It's also confirmed in police supplements and from the other people I spoke with from that day. So after Damien saw Stephen at Master Skater that day, he went to Water Street, met customer A, and that person gave Damien $900 to pick up a pound of weed in the afternoon. This person confirmed that fact for us. Customary was just 13 years old at the time and told me at one point in our conversations that Damien, quote, had a lot of money on him, probably $3,000 to $5,000. That's far outside the amount we came up with in the earlier episodes of around $1,600 to $1,700, and I don't have any verification for that from any other source. Most people seem to think Damien was running around with around $2,000 or less, but there are minor rumors that alleged that Damien was killed over drug debt totaling, in some stories, up to $20,000. We have absolutely no corroboration for these stories, but this one detail that's so different with customer A is worth highlighting, whether it's a faulty memory of someone who is younger than others at the time, or whether it turns out to be important. That will just have to remain to be seen. So here's the thing. If this person was driving Damien around all afternoon, why would he just drop him off a couple miles from his apartment and then go back to that apartment and not come back to pick Damien up. Story goes that customer A, the other people hanging around when he placed his order, all met up at Damien's apartment after Damien had been dropped off at the mansions about 5 p.m. The driver, customer A said, drove Damien there while the rest of them walked over town to Damien's place. Then, customer A said, the driver showed up at Damien's place too. So if Damien was at James's place to buy a pound of weed, and that pound wasn't produced, he'd have had two reasons I can see to be making calls. One, uh, find a new pound. 
and two, find a ride home. Recall from the first few episodes that Damien's best friend Dave said he got a call in the afternoon from Damien on Saturday, May 25th. The two had been partying at Damien's apartment the night before and planned to go to a party Saturday night. Quote, something Damien already knew about, end quote, Dave told me last year, without naming the place. But Dave said the next day's hangover had him saying no when Damien called to see if he was still up for it. If Damien figured Dave might be his ride back to the house, that could account for why Dave told me that Damien seemed disappointed when he said he wasn't going out that night like they had originally planned. That may mean Damien did make a second call. James couldn't remember whether it was more than one call Damien made that night from his apartment, but he thought it might have been. If Dave was out for partying and a ride, then why wouldn't Damien call his own apartment to get his original wheels back? James thought at one point that Damien did call his own apartment. Dave said, too, when he talked to Damien, he thought Damien was calling from home because there was no background noise, no one talking. Why wouldn't Damien have just called his original driver to come get him, letting him know that plans for Dave to join them that night were changed? I have no idea. I have no idea. When I initially spoke with Damien's brother, Stephen, I asked if he could find out whether the driver would speak with me. It was right around August or September when I first reached out, and it was on September 20th that I got a text out of the blue, the first actual text to do with anything for this story not coming from a known friend or family member of Damien's, from a guy named Drew. Drew's mom and stepdad owned that skate park in downtown Warren, the one where Damien had been taking up skateboarding, according to Steven. Master Skater. Drew was upset last September and wanted me to know that he was going to sue me if I said the name of his skate park on my show. Drew and I went back and forth a little bit that day. I tried to let him know what I was working on and what my goal for the show would be. He told me that I sounded like an exploitative narcissist. That's my paraphrasing of his much longer explanation. And then he went on to say that he already had his lawyer retained, if I did. Unfortunately, Master Skater was a public place and existed in the public record, and everything from police supplements to newspaper articles to Stephen himself confirmed for me that Damien hung out there, so no one can sue me for saying that. They're welcome to try. There's nothing to sue over. I told Drew I was really sorry last September, but I was still going to go forward with this podcast, even if he did sue me. And I reached out to Stephen to let him know what had happened. My goal through all of this has been to be delicate with family to try and take the brunt of any negative feedback or issues that come up as a result of me dredging this whole thing back up, and basically to make sure that I'm on track with my understanding of who Damien is. When I reached out to tell Stephen what Drew told me, he said he'd reach out to the driver to find out if he'd talk. A few days later, Stephen told me the driver let him know that he did not want to talk to me, and Stephen was pretty sure that this person had just blocked him on Facebook over Stephen asking him to do so. When... How the driver was questioned by police, what the context of his answers were, I don't have. That is one interview with police I haven't been able to see, and I haven't reached out to the driver based on my conversation with Stephen about it, which ended with, quote, he doesn't want to talk, and I think he just blocked me, end quote. So up to this point, I've tried to keep Stephen out of the show as much as I can, and because his concern from the beginning of this whole thing was that while he supported what Brian and I were doing, he'd put distance between himself and Warren, and he really just didn't want the whole thing to get back to the way it had been before he did that. I'm also trying to be respectful of his privacy now, but it's important, I think, to give you the same from Stephen that I've given you from James and from anyone else who would talk to me on this story especially because I've gotten a few screenshots from a few folks that let me know that Stephen currently feels at least part of the show is misinformation based. 
Specifically, the issue seems to be with the fact that I've repeatedly published that Damien may have been headed to Brown Run Road that night. Now, that does go completely against what Stephen told me that night was supposed to end up like. But I can only say what people have said to me, and I can only offer you speculative content on that information at this point, because if I could tell you what happened to Damien, we'd be having a way, way different chapter eight. I can promise you that. So let's take a quick mid-roll break, and when we get back, we'll talk about everything Stephen told me at the beginning of all this, which I've only talked around because I wanted to make sure Stephen had ample time to come on tape with me before I paraphrase his words. Before we take off, I do want to also let that driver know, same invitation is open to you that's been open to Stephen, open to James, open to anybody on this story since last year. Talk to me. 814-230-5855, you'll get me faster if you text me. I would love to talk. And frankly, I'm not a big fan of having to paraphrase what Stephen told me, given the fact that I know he's concerned that I'm misinforming folks on his brother's disappearance. That's kind of why I have to at this point, and I can't let it wait any longer. The invitation to come tell you guys this story in his own words has been open to Stephen since the project began and remains open with the greatest of respect. I appreciate all the help you've given me, Stephen. If it weren't for you, I would never have made it to that first meeting with the police as prepared as I was or with as many other sources already under my belt. So I'm going to do my best to paraphrase what you've told me, and I'm going to be referring only to what I can pull from texts and instant messages. Nothing we've spoken about on the phone without a written record will be included here because I remain hopeful that you'll still want to come on at some point and tell the story yourself. And I also don't want to get anything wrong on your behalf. And I still would really love to hear that rubber chicken story you had for me. Anyhow, when we get back, what I know from Steven. Do you have a question or a comment about this case or our coverage of it? Visit our Anchor site and click the message button to leave it for us in a voice recording. We may use your recording on an upcoming Q&A episode or other places throughout upcoming episodes. Do it. Peer pressure. So, I reached out to Steven initially on August 1st. There. Finally, I told you the exact date that's been bugging me. 24 paragraphs long. I live a wordy life. What do you want me to say? Quote, you have my approval and support, but I do not want to be on tape. Stephen wrote back. I told Stephen that was understood, but that my door was open and I really hoped to have him speak with me, even off tape, just to tell me who Damien was aside from a missing person. Eventually, Stephen said... He'd make some time to talk with me. We finally spoke on the phone when I was on my way home from work. At that time, I was living in Warren County, but working in Venango. I have been a mobile employee, either a phlebotomist or a reporter, since 2019. I've had probably the majority of my conversations with people for a story on the side of the road. And with people not for a story, if I'm honest. Stephen, if any of this is wrong, please reach out. I know I said I wouldn't talk about phone conversations, but I was taking notes that night, which I later transcribed, so I'm going to have to lean on them here, just to give listeners the most information I possibly can from you. Stephen told me that the day Damien hurt his knee, he and a bunch of friends had pulled him back to the apartment on a skateboard. The accident, Stephen told me, had happened while Damien was skateboarding, and Stephen had to convince Damien to go to the doctor for it a day or so later. Stephen said the Saturday Damien went missing, May 25, 2002, they had made plans to go to a regular spot at the top of Cherry Grove Road. 
Camping at the top of Cherry Grove Road is generally understood to be in the Heart's Content area. This regular spot, Stephen told me, was about a mile into the woods, so when Damien hurt his knee a few days to a week prior to that Saturday, the plan for that night changed. It wasn't until the night before, Stephen told me, that the plan to move that woods party to the apartment on Cedar Street happened. So Damien's best friend, Dave, told us in the first few episodes that Damien called him the afternoon of May 25th. Damien asked if they were still partying, Dave said, and he told him no because he still had a hangover from the previous night's chicken-in-the-sink party. Dave described that night in his emails to me. This is a direct quote from one of Dave's emails. I was at a party at his apartment one night, and we planned that I would go with him to another party the next day, something he already knew about. But then the next day I had such a hangover, I canceled on him when he called me around two or three in the afternoon. I think a couple people mentioned seeing him that day, but as far as I know, nobody saw him after that. It was probably at least two to three days later that it occurred to me that I hadn't heard from him in a while. And I tried to contact him first by phone, then stopping by his apartment. And after being unable to get a hold of him for a while, I contacted everybody I could think of, his family, his mom, dad, Stephen, and Jamie, to see if they knew where he was. I think that was about the same time they contacted the police. Dana described that in chapter two from the family's perspective. Here's a refresher. So did you get a call from Steven at all? Like in that week? Was did did you did Steven communicate with you guys at all? Um I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. Uh, at this point Steven was married and doing his thing. Doing his thing. Um you know, Janine would have had more communication. With him. You know, and, and skip uh, than for me to have, you know, communication with Stephen so much, mm -hmm. you know, at that point. You know, like I said, he was married. Yeah. You know. What was your experience when you guys got to the police station that night? Because I know, you know, over the years there have been different interviews. And, and what was your feeling like when you guys got there? Did you feel like hopeful? Well, well, no, because, you know, it's like we feel we need to do something because when we got to his house, that there was notes there. There was a few notes, and it said, you know, just, I don't even remember word for word, but something like, hey, dude, um, hope everything's okay, but you know you better make this right. Mm -hmm. So just different things like that. A couple of people were trying to reach him, and when we got in the apartment, the phone rang. I answered the phone. Someone asked for Damien. I said, no, he's not here. I said, may I ask who's calling? No, it's just a friend looking for him. And I said, well, I told him who I was and said, actually, we're looking for him. Nobody's, you know, heard from him. Um, and he wouldn't give me his name, but he said, you might want to check the jail. I don't know if he suggested hospital too or not, but he said, you might want to check the jail. And uh, I said, okay, but I did give this this person my number and asked him if he would call me if he hears anything or anything like that and I did talk to him again well his name was Elber um and he just said nobody had heard anything or nothing like that you know everybody everybody's wondering where he was from what I remember you know and that's kind of what was going around Danica said the same thing and I know um somebody who hung out with was saying you know it kind of chatter was like where is he but nobody wanted to talk about it you know and it's still to this day it's it's kind of impossible to find out who he was riding with that night or you know yeah. who he was with well that wasn't the night the first time we went into the house and he wasn't there was not the night that we went to okay. the police okay stacy went home and told his dad skip um and 
Skip says, he's 22. He's an adult. He's fine. Quit being girls. And um, so then I think it went, it was after that. Anyways, I contacted a state trooper that I knew just personally and said, hey, you know, this is kind of going on. Um, can I file a missing persons conference? Because Skip wasn't interested in, you know, he, for no, he had no reason to think something was, you know, up. Um, and just thought we were overreacting. Because uh, at the time, I was not talking to Janine, Damien's, you know, mom, we, sisters. We fought all the time, you know. And um, so he told me, no, I can't do anything. It, it has to be a parent. So I reached out to Janine. And it might, may, I can't remember the day. Maybe it was Monday or something like that or the following weekend, I can't remember, but it was within days there. I reached out to Janine and said, hey, have you heard from Damien? And she said, no, why, what's up? I have been trying to reach him, what's going on? And I told her what happened with Stacy and I, you know, that we, uh, her and Stacy, of course, didn't get along, you know, the ex and the new wife. Um, so, and I told her, I can't file a missing persons. We've been to the apartment, everything like that, and what we found. So uh, Janine didn't drive. She didn't like driving or whatever. So uh, I had to go pick her up. She lived in Celeron, get her back here. We got to the police department. It was late. I'm not sure the time, 9, 11, somewhere in there. So this is something I often have to do, which is maddening because it's been 20 years. So of course, no one remembers what time something happened that day. It's hard to even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. I can't blame them. But okay, so every time I dip into someone's story about that day, I make a timeline that's specific to them. Let's make one using Dave's 2 to 3 p.m. estimate for that phone call automatically it can't be that Damien called Dave from James's apartment unless either James and most of the other folks are wrong about the time of events that day. It's unlikely that the majority of people are wrong, but it's possible Dave could be ahead a few hours. But let's just say he's not. How does that change things? If Damien placed that call between 2 and 3 p.m. on May 25th, where would he have been when he did it? I talked to one friend of Damien's this spring who said she saw Damien that Saturday, May 25th in the afternoon. This person was walking her dog downtown and came upon Damien using a payphone in front of Burger King, which at the time would have been on Pennsylvania Avenue between Water Street and Conewango Avenue. At the time that this tip came in this past spring, I didn't have much to tie it to, but as I sit here putting this specific episode together, it would make sense that it may have been the call to Dave. There's no way to know, but the times make sense. Damien left Master Skater, where he visited Stephen, no later than noon or 1 p.m., Stephen told me. And Stephen also said that he didn't see the driver bring Damien to the skate park. He heard about that afterward, that this person was driving Damien around that day. So if Damien was on foot when he went to the skate park, that payphone, kind of at the corner of Water Street and Pennsylvania Avenue, would have been a great place to stop on the way to the Water Street house, where he'd meet customer A. That could make sense. It would also make sense for the driver to be hanging out at Water Street when Damien got there. This was a group of friends who splintered off into roles surrounding Damien's last activities as the day went. But customer A. Customer A was sitting at his 
Water Street friend's house, and maybe that's where Damien picked up his ride. It would make more sense if that payphone call was pre-Water Street. If Damien sounded disappointed, as Dave describes, when Dave told him he wasn't partying that night, the disappointment may have been at least partly that Damien needed a ride. That's a question we can't answer, but talking to that driver would really clear a lot up. We do hope to hear from him. Damien went from Master Skater one way or another to Water Street, where he met Customer A and picked up that $900. Customer A says that the Water Street friend and himself walked over to Damien's. Well, let's check back in with Stephen then. Stephen had been working at Master Skater that afternoon and given Damien some money for a bottle of liquor, a small amount of weed. Stephen later told me that the plan was for Damien to go around and get some things. Then they would all meet back at the apartment and the driver would take him over to the liquor store. Also, just a quick side note, there's that cashier, Brianna, who said that she saw Damien leave the supermarket she worked at between 11 p.m. and maybe 2 a.m. The liquor store is in the same plaza as that supermarket, and it would be on the end of the plaza closer to the car wash, which is the end of the plaza that Brianna said that she saw Damien leave from. That's an unverified tip, an unverified sighting that's several hours after Damien was last seen up to this point, which was at 6 p.m. after visiting James. These little details help nail big details into place. That still doesn't necessarily corroborate Brianna's story, but it sure does strengthen it. But yeah, he seemed relaxed. He was chill. chill. Do you remember where he came from? Where were... So you were reading a book. When did you first perceive that someone is, was around you and you needed to check them out? And then when did you first perceive it? I was him? just at my register reading my book. Did he come like, from like behind the service desk or in front of the service desk? They, I mean, if you can remember. I think he came more from like there where they have the drinks because I know he had a drink. So like coming from the video store side toward the checkout? Yeah. Okay. And then he, when he left, he went out the main lobby and then out toward the car wash. Got you. The plan was for him to meet up with Damien at the Cedar Street place and start getting ready to party there instead of at the top of Cherry Grove Road. When he got back to the apartment, though, Stephen said, the driver and Water Street guy were in Damien's house waiting for him to come back. He usually only locked the door if he was leaving, Stephen told me. We were discussing access to the apartment because Customer A had just told me that he'd gotten Damien's key as a sort of promise not to rip you off collateral. When I asked Stephen if he'd ever heard this, he told me, quote, no, I seriously doubt it. Sounds like lies to me. Damien didn't lock the door during the day. I had a key, Stephen told me, and locked the door after they left. Stephen had told me on our first call that he got to the apartment after work and found people hanging out inside, so he kicked them out. I also stuck a piece of scrap paper in the door a certain way so I could tell if anyone went in there, Stephen said. He said it was only the driver and the Water Street friend in the apartment. Customer A, who said he'd walked to the apartment with Water Street friend while the driver took Damien to Prospect, wasn't there. So why was Water Street inside with the driver, but not Customer A, if the plan, as all three of those people who've spoken with me agree, was to meet Damien after he got back from James's? In fact, Customer A told me it wasn't supposed to take more than an hour. The driver in Water Street, Stephen told me, quote, said they were there waiting for stuff. When he heard that story, Stephen told me last fall, he, quote, heard had a couple thousand. 900 seems like a weird number. So both Stephen and Customer A feel like Damien had more than what we're thinking on him that day. Customer A said about three to $5,000. 
Stephen thought that customer A had given him more like a couple grand. Stephen went on to say that he didn't know if he ever even met customer A. I told him that customer A was only 13 at the time, and Stephen said that made sense. He was 20, so, quote, why is a 13-year-old trying to buy so much drugs? I never asked that question because I was also looking for pot at 13, so it didn't seem weird to me. My life is what it is, man. It's fine. Anyhow, I decided to go back to what customer A had told me and compare it with Stephen's memories. According to customer A, quote, Damien, myself, and met up at house on Water Street. There might have been other people our age there, but not sure. That's when I gave him the money. He gave me his apartment key as assurance he was coming back. He lived by the YMCA. Could drive at the time, so he gave Damien a ride to the corner of Prospect and Doll Street, dropped him off. We all walked to his apartment. Damien was on crutches. Then came over to Damien's apartment. We waited and waited. He never came. I figured I got ripped off. We were young. Time to go home. My sister came and got me. I don't remember if she knew at the time what was going on. Everyone did leave, though. Locked his apartment. Few days later, the police called my parents. Took me in. I told them everything I knew, which is all the same I just shared with you. And so did all my friends. I honestly cannot believe that nobody has any knowledge of what happened. Of course, there are rumors. Of course, I have my suspicions. But I've told the police all of this. Customer A's suspicions are the same as Steven's, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But Steven says that Damien never locked the door during the day unless he was going somewhere for a whole minute. When Steven got to the apartment, it was only Water Street and Driver waiting inside. No customer A to be seen anywhere. So Steven and I talked about a lot of things over the last several months, but one thing I was curious about was the exact spot they were originally planning to camp. According to Steven, quote, My buddy Castaway can confirm the original party spot for that weekend was supposed to be in the Cherry Grove area. He was the one to find the spot, and we asked his permission to use it and invited him, of course, the 25th. It was always the plan before Damien hurt his knee, end quote. Stephen told me that my original sparring theory wasn't on point. He wouldn't have had trouble with the stairs getting into James's place, Stephen said. Quote, he was a very physically fit person, end quote, but he wasn't sparring. The knee. He had been training James, though, in the weeks prior to his disappearance, and that was initially something I was intensely curious about. How did James and Damien originally even hook up? By the time I got to James, he mentioned that they met through a mutual love of controlled combat and training, so I was able to tick things off lists for James and a ton of other people thanks to these initial conversations with Stephen. So I asked Stephen, would Damien for sure have gone to the apartment to buy? If that's what he was going there for, which Stephen couldn't confirm totally because he said his knowledge of the whole $900 situation even was secondhand and days afterward. If he was getting stuff, though, Stephen told me, he would not have done it outside. Damien's friend Joe Bees and now a current city police officer, Officer Bees, confirmed this for me, too. Damien was the type of guy who wanted dropped off a block before his location and didn't do illegal things where anyone could see. He was careful, Bees told me, to the point of almost seeming paranoid sometimes, but no more than probably most people in that context. He wasn't crazy uptight, Bees explained, but he wasn't sloppy either. One of the things I really wanted to do at the start of all this was to watch the interviews for each of these people, for customer A, for Steven, for the driver, and for Water Street. I only got to see a short section of one of Steven's tapes, I did see a longer section of Damien's friend Dave, but I haven't seen any of the others. I'd still really love to hear what the driver had to say to police in the days following Damien's disappearance. 
in my interview, Stephen told me, quote, the police said they talked to James and James said he made a phone call. Did you hear me repeatedly tell them to get his phone records to see who Damien called? Unfortunately, I wasn't able to see that part of Stephen's tape, but it for sure doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm sure Stephen probably did request that the police do that repeatedly during his interview. It would make sense, but I just haven't seen it, so I can't tell you I saw that happen. Stephen described to me when we first started talking a series of interactions with the police that felt a lot like harassment to him or like what James described. Quote, I feel they were or are so focused on me that the truth eluded them. End quote. That was James in the last episode. Stephen, same story. He was never scared by any of it, Stephen said, quote, I had nothing to hide, end quote. But it put a dent in his life and reduced his confidence in the city of Warren PD to be brought in in as many ways and at as many different times as he says he was. If Stephen ever does come on the show, I'll definitely have him describe that for you in his own words. And Stephen told me, as far as his financial habits, quote, Damien did not sell drugs. He was getting money from the army to pay bills, and I was working two jobs. Damien was only at our apartment alone for like a month, Stephen said. Originally, the two had apartments next to each other in a different building farther east on Pennsylvania Avenue, headed out of town toward the reservoir. The two of them moved to the Cedar Street apartment, Damien's Aunt Dana said in Chapter 2, to cut costs and double up on expenses. I know it sounds stupid, but waiting for his next unemployment check. And when that came in, and it wasn't touched, he didn't go draw money out from a Northwest anywhere. To me, I knew it was gone then. Mm -hmm. You know, and as I was saying, a lot of people, you know, say, oh, well, I think it was dealing drugs, dealing drugs to kids and stuff like that. Damien was living on his unemployment check because he was in the military. Damien did three years in the military. You know, he was deployed. He was a veteran and he didn't get that respect. If he had a short haircut and didn't have his nails painted, he would have had that respect. But because he dyed his hair black or, you know, he didn't have it. He, you know, um, but he was living on that. And like I, you know, I'd say, you know, Paycheck come in on Friday, unemployment come in on Friday, we're eating Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know? <laughs> Two weeks later, we're eating noodles and noodles. He, he wasn't and I would have gotten along so well. He <laughs> wasn't selling. I mean, he didn't have any money. My, you know, he had just applied for a job at Worley. My mom took him down. He applied, you know, he was looking for work. If he was selling drugs he, and could live on it, he, he wasn't looking. But he yeah. knew his unemployment was running out. I think he got it for a year after he got out of the military and stuff. Yeah. So, and it was about that time to start. It was about that time to start looking two months. It was going to be running out, you know, so. Stephen moved out about a month before Damien went missing because he was moving in with his girlfriend. Said Stephen, quote, all the bills were in my name. I think his army money was around 600 every two weeks, end quote. By army money, I have to assume Stephen means the unemployment Damien drew for the year following his discharge. So obviously, anytime I reach out to a family member or a close friend one of the first things I ask them if they don't tell me straight up is what they think happened to Damien and who they think might have been involved. At the top of the series, Brian and I told you that two suspects developed over the years for Damien's disappearance, but neither of them shook out for law enforcement. I spoke with both of those people. The first, James, I've hammered into the ground. There's nothing new or else or additional to report to you on James. He was released from prison last October, and I reached out to him in January. That's all I know. 
The second person, both law enforcement countywide and in the public, thought might have had something to do with Damien's disappearance because he appeared in a lot of rumors, was a man named Frank. You heard me talk about Frank earlier in the series as well. He's the contractor who was arrested in 2015 for corrupt organizations. I reached out to Frank, who's incarcerated in the State Correctional Institution at Huntingdon. We spoke back and forth a few times several months ago, and I'm going to get into his statements to me regarding Damien and the case in the next episode. But for now, though, I want you to know that when I initially reached out to Stephen, Frank's was the first name he brought up to me. So let's end this one like we did the last one, yes? And then, for the love of God, I should get a Q&A episode up before we wrap this season up with Chapter 10, you guys. So... I need something from you. With the exception of Frank's portion, which we'll talk about next week, you guys know just about as much of the story of Damien's disappearance as Brian and I do. How about that? Do you feel like you're good? Or do you have questions? If you don't have questions, man, you fail. I'm sorry. I love you. You're still a precious and irreplaceable part of the world. But if you don't have more questions right now than you do certainties at this point, I have failed you. Or you know what happened. Either way, maybe you don't have any questions, but you just want to tell us what you think of this case or this show or the story so far or us and how we've handled this whole thing. Look, I've seen the screenshots. Okay. I love that y'all are doing breakout sessions on your own. And I love when you message me, but it's like in school. This case is the biggest, most unwieldy story I've ever tried to tell in my entire life. And I don't know if I could find one to match it, to be honest with you, and I've been storytelling for quite some time now. I know you have questions. Everyone else does too, and they're not stupid at all, none of them. Brian and I have the benefit of a year's worth of investigation before we ever even told anyone what we were going to do publicly. We have gone back and back to the same questions time and time again. We want to clarify anything you're not clear on for you before we wrap up the first season because... That is what we set out to do. You can ask your question on this show. It will run in a Q&A episode next week. I need questions to do that, though, and I know you have them. So please visit anchor.com slash letsfinddamien slash message. You can ask them without ever having to talk to another person. You can just use your first name only, follow the prompts on your phone, and please, please leave us a message. If you're one of these people... If you're the driver or Water Street or Customer A or Steven, I've kept all of your identities as secret as you've asked and as I can, which I always promised I would do. If you can answer some of these questions, the only thing it might do is get us closer to resolution for Damien's mother, Janine. It's been 20 years. I've told everybody all about how much of a dumpster fire my life is. And if you come on this show and someone talks shit and I hear it, I'll stand up for you like I stand up for myself and my daughters. That's loudly and without shame. If Damien was your friend, tell me a story about him. I don't bite. There are no confirmed bites yet. Find one. I defy you to find someone who can say I bit them and be telling you the truth. I take the things I've not done wrong seriously because they are precious and few. Stephen took a few days to respond to me initially, but I was really excited when he did. He and Dana have been the two family members who've given me the most feedback and the most information, and they're not close, and they have different roles to play in the story, but their contributions, Dana, Stephen, your contributions, you guys, have been phenomenal. I cannot thank you enough. Stephen's interactions with me have always been positive. He's been polite. 
He talks for a long time with me when he can talk about his brother, his family, and his life since Damien went missing. One thing I didn't ask him and should have, and would like to if he chooses to come on the show, is for a description of that subjective experience. What's it like to be the brother of the missing person? That's a fucked up and personal way to ask that question, but it's also the quickest and most direct. You know how much I adore direct. Dana told me that the experience was one of feeling like an outsider, even from within. People who haven't been through it, she said, can't possibly understand. And then the rumors are he took off and went to Florida and all that kind of shit. Um, so for me to reach out to, I remember it was probably about two or three weeks into it. It was right around two weeks. Somebody, and I don't know who it was, honestly, said to me, do you think you'll ever find him? And I, I mean, you could have blown me over. I never in a, in the two weeks time, which is a million moments in my head, ever thought for a second that it wasn't any minute. I mean, if I heard a knock at the door, because the understanding was that the police were to get a hold of me. So we as a family could go to Janine, you know, and, and skip. They wouldn't be alone when they found out, you know. Um, so I heard a siren. I thought they're looking for me, you know, mm -hmm. slow down so they could catch up because they're, you know, they probably seen me pass. Or I mean, this is really how things were in my head at that time. But I think that's completely normal. So the first time anybody said, do you think you I was dumbfounded. I would have never in a million years thought we would be here going on 20 years. You know, it just... It never even, and so I bet there were all kinds of insensitive things said or like things that people did that they thought were helpful that you guys are like, please. I remember <laughs> taking flyers at down to the fair, Warren mm -hmm. County Fair, and uh, getting permission to put them out, mm -hmm. missing persons ones, because you'd never seen those. I'd never seen a missing persons one, you know? Mm -hmm. Never. The only thing I thought was little kids, you know, little kids go missing, you know, or women go missing. You know, where somebody can, you know, use that, you know, but it never, ever, ever thought of anything like this. So um, I went down, I got permission to put them out, and I thought, you know, go down by the bathrooms, because that's where, you know, everybody goes there. But you're the you standing there for a minute at the one yeah. there, too. So um, I went down there, and there were these two sisters I knew from Lander. I just knew who they were. I didn't really know them. And I was putting it up. She said, what are you doing? She says, oh, him? She says, I seen him a couple weeks ago at the Quintville. He took off and went to Florida or something. Did she know you were his aunt? Yeah. Wow. Um, they opened a business shortly after that in Lander. Mm -hmm. Never ever went there. Never once. Yeah. Never once. And I remember anybody in town that wouldn't let us put a flyer out. The Busy Bee. Oh, they wouldn't. wouldn't let us put a flyer in there. Nope. Never going there again. Never going there again. You know? Yeah. That's got to be so hard. This is your community, and he's a community member, and to have people say you can't put a flyer here. Yeah, well, it's, you know, standard, you know, procedure. We don't order, but didn't offer. And some places said, I'm sorry, we, we cannot, but we have a board inside. Mm -hmm. The laundromat in mm -hmm. town said, we, you know, we don't put anything on the windows, but we have a board, community board inside, if you want to go inside and hang it, yeah. you know. Yeah. But. I'd imagine Stephen feels probably the same way for reasons which make sense when you consider his daily relationship with Damien. One thing Stephen told me repeatedly over the past several months is that he and Damien weren't super close as kids or young adults. 
not enemies, but no closer than regular siblings. It wasn't until after Damien got back from the military, Stephen told me, that he started having that grown-up relationship with Damien as a grown-up brother that the two got close. So close that they moved in and lived together for a time. And then, Stephen said, as quick as that seems to have happened, Damien was gone. And that, Stephen says, is one reason he finds it difficult to discuss Damien or this case on tape with me. It's just not a good memory, it's hard to get over when he's done, and it's too much for him at this time. So I'm just going to lay everything I have from Stephen in front of you, and I'm saying feel about it how you will. If you have questions and I can answer them, I sure will. If I can't answer them, if they're questions that Stephen would have to answer himself, I'll let you know that too. Either way, 20 years takes its own toll on a person, whether they were great years or shitty ones. And I guess that Stevens, since Damien went missing, have been a healthy mixture of both. I can't imagine having gone through my last 20 with a missing sibling. So Stephen, we appreciate the support you've given us and we'll do what we can to get to the bottom of his story. And thank you for sharing with us what and how you have up to this point. Next week, we'll discuss Frank. And if you guys rise to the challenge, we'll answer some of your questions. Anchor.com slash let's find Damien slash message. Until then, boys and girls. Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacey Gross. Executive producers are Stacey Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacey Gross. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we've used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening, rate, and review. It'll help us out a ton.